This week on the Physio Foundation's podcast, I'm talking to physiotherapist and PhD student McGregor Hall about his tips for helping people manage their pain in the clinic. Welcome back to the Physio Foundation's podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So I've got a live podcast recording. You might have noticed that I've been speaking to people all around the world over the last um, over 12 months of this podcast, and I've been recording a lot via video conferencing, but I'm sitting in my office here at Monash Uni Physiotherapy, and I'm talking face-to-face, having a nice coffee with Mac Hall. So Mac is a highly experienced physiotherapist. He's got a special interest in pain and pain management in the clinic, and he's doing his PhD with us here at Monash Physio. And since he's sitting right here, rather than me doing a long and extensive bio on Mac, I'm going to ask him to tell us a bit more. So Mac, welcome to Physio Foundations. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. So um, let's go through the bio. Tell us about your interests and background and who are you? Who is Mac? Um, well, I grew up in, in a place in, in the States called Maine, just outside of Boston. Um, so I was a pretty lucky kid. I had a house on a lake. We spent my summers sailing and water skiing and my winters playing ice hockey and skiing. Um, but there were no parties and no girls in Maine. So I went to college in New York where I studied sports medicine, um, spent a few years in New York. And then I went down to South Carolina and then back to Boston where I did a surgical placement before moving to Australia and taking up physio. That was about 20, just over 20 years ago. Um, and at first I really hated the chronic pain patients. They were really difficult. They didn't follow that normal pathoanatomical type of healing. And I just found them really frustrating. And then it was probably about 12, 13 years ago, I thought I, I might need to learn how to treat these patients and learn more about them. And uh, I've, I've actually really enjoy it now and find it some of my most satisfying and favorite patients are the ones that have um, persistent pain or chronic pain. That's interesting and, and very honest. So you found that frustrating, not only, um, so why, why was it so frustrating initially? Well, especially, you know, you go back 25 years when I first studied and, you know, chronic pain really wasn't on the radar. Pain science was not really much of a thing other yeah. than your typical, you know, nociceptive C-fiber type of pain. And mm. that was it. And when you had patients that didn't heal their tissues, either didn't heal the way that you thought it would or, or, or the, the, it did heal and they still felt their pain, like I didn't know what to do with them because they just didn't match my my understanding and my training and, and that normal um you know, sequence of healing that right. 80% of people sort of go through. So fast forward 20 years, and now that's your special interest in mm-hmm. physiotherapy. How often is that the way that you've got something that you either felt unconfident with or you didn't like or you were frustrated by and you thought, hang on, what is it about this that's I don't like? Or what, what is it about that? And you do that with people as well. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes your special interest area of expertise and you're doing a PhD as well, which we can talk about yeah. in a minute in the topic. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it happens, um, you know, more often than not, well, at least fair, fair bit with, um, with a lot of things, physio and just in life in general, you know, you start out thinking that you're going to go one way and you end up somewhere else. Never thought I'd be in Australia. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so you you work in a local clinic nearby. You're yep. working, doing some teaching, and you're doing your research in the form of a PhD here at Monash Physio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it'd be a good chance to introduce you to everybody. And and I know that you've got a really nice way of explaining some very complex concepts 
particularly related to persistent pain in the clinic, and that's what I wanted to chat about. So let's start yeah. with um, let's start with a very big overview. What is pain? Um, well, pain is the, 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 the classic definition, I guess, of pain is just any uncomfortable experience. We typically thought of that as being associated with some sort of injury or tissue damage. Um, it's it's now broadened a little bit more to include a lot more of an emotional component as well. Um, essentially, you know, pain is what the person is experiencing now. Um, we seem to just think, well, what is their pain? It's what they're feeling. Hmm. And I guess the related question then is why do we experience pain? Yeah, well, it's a few things. I think um, mostly it's to keep us safe, to protect us from from threat and danger. And so pain is our body's way of letting our brain know that it's hurt itself and that it needs some protection um, to make you aware of that that threat. Um, and typically um, what happens is you you become aware of that that injury and it hurts. And so you protect it and you might see a physio or your doctor or something, um, take some medications, uh, rest it, give it some time. And usually after a period of time, the tissue makes some repairs and then the pain goes away and you get going again. And that happens pretty reliably, reliably with most people, about 70 to 90% of the time. Mm. And a lot of the time people seek treatment because of pain. So it's this powerful motivator for changing behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pain is an unpleasant experience and we don't like to be uncomfortable. So we try to do things to better our own, mm -hmm. um, you know, comfort levels. And that means seeing professionals or other people taking medications and whatever it might be to try and reduce pain. So we see pain as a negative thing in many ways, but then we also recognize it as a positive thing if it's a, a part of a solution, right? Yeah. And this that applies really nicely to an acute model. And I'm afraid of doing a false dichotomy here of acute and chronic or persistent pain. Mm. So before I go, go down that rabbit hole, what is persistent pain and, and how is that different from acute pain and what's going on there? So I guess persistent pain, again, the technical definition is usually anything, any pain that lasts longer than about three months is still classified as persistent or chronic pain. Um, what makes it different from acute pain is mm. probably we have this, um, again, this pathoanatomical model of tissue healing. So essentially when we hurt ourselves, some of our cells that make up our tissues die. And when they die, they release the chemicals inside of them. And those chemicals do two things. One is they activate the immune system to come and make some repairs. And two, they stimulate nerves to let the brain know that there's those chemicals there. Mm. And normally, um, the, you know, white blood cells and, um, macrophages and phagocytes and those sort of things come and they clean up the, the damaged cells and get rid of the debris yeah. and the cells that didn't get damaged, didn't get injured, that survive that, that traumatic event or that injury start replicating and making new cells and patching up the, the damaged area. Um, and that usually takes anywhere between kind of 24, 48 hours up to, you know, three months in some tissue, depending on the type of tissue and the extent of damage. And then normally once all of that is cleaned up, the, chemicals are gone and the pain essentially should go away. Um, and that's what is, I guess, the typical acute type of pain. But in chronic pain, something goes wrong in that process. And even after the tissue repairs have been made or completed, mm. um, the person still experiences pain for a myriad of reasons that we're still trying to figure out why. Right. So that's really interesting. So 
tell us more about persistent pain. Why do some people have all of the contributing factors and all of the story that might lead them towards a pattern of persistent pain and they don't get it? And some people end up with persistent pain. So what's going on as an overall picture? Um, well, we know, like you said, there are some associated factors that seem to be associated with persistent pain. Um, so essentially people that have high levels of stress, anxiety, depression, their mental status um, is um, maybe poor health um, or they're, they're just really wound up. Um, that tends to be highly associated with persistent pain. However, it's not um, necessarily been proven to be causative but it is highly associated with it. But yet you have people who have very high stress levels and anxiety and mental health issues who hurt themselves and they recover just fine. Um, my work has looked at a lot of childhood trauma. So adults who has, as kids had difficult childhoods, that seems to wire their nervous system to be a bit more on high alert. Um, same with people who were victims of, um, you know, a, a, attacks or car accidents, um, assault, those sort of things, they tend to be more likely to develop persistent pain, but not all of them. It's not exclusive. There's some genetic factors that seem to be pretty strongly associated with it, where um, essentially at the time of injury, when they do hurt themselves, um, those chemicals that we sort of mentioned at the start, um, they have a much higher bombardment or a, a bigger flood of those chemicals, um, which means that the pain will last longer and be stronger. Um, but why do some people have all those, you know, the so-called yellow flags that mm. we think, oh, this is a high-risk patient, and then they never develop chronic pain? And that's a, a really good question. I think, and I'm purely speculating here, but I think that some of those people, it might be that their their brains are essentially too full with other stuff, that there's just no more room for one more thing. And so the pain doesn't get to get that foothold that maybe it would in someone else. Um, I think some people have all those issues, but they actually are you know, actively trying to pursue better lifestyles and, and, and make their lives better. And so pain for them might become something that is just one more challenge that they're going to overcome. Um, but we don't really know. It's a great question. Why don't some people develop mm. chronic pain when some people who have almost the exact same profile in yeah. every sense of the word do? So you've got this analogy or this, this visual in your head of a, a line of reaching full in your head where you've got the psychosocial, psychological, the biochemical, all these other factors um, combining, and then someone's reached a point where they're, they've hit their limit. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And other people probably haven't gotten anywhere near that limit, and so the pain, there's plenty of room in their, in their you know, I'm going to say their brain or in their person for that, mm. for that pain, and it won't necessarily become chronic because they're not, you know, their cup isn't full enough yet. I think it's a fine balance. It's a good way to lead into a question that I had, which was if we're talking to our students, new grads, and anyone else listening to this who works with people with pain, and this is now a special interest of yours, you're doing your PhD in the area, and you're really good at helping people with pain, which is a really difficult thing to do. Um, and you're also a really good educator, really good at talking about these concepts and summarizing them, which is why I wanted to talk to you here. What advice can you give students and new grads and people who are novices? I don't like the word novice, but they're uh, less experienced than you um, in, in terms of tackling this really complex problem. So maybe in terms of assessments you would do, um, your approach overall, 
What are some of the interventions you do? It's a free blank canvas. How, how, what advice could you give people for? Um, I think probably the first advice that you're treating a patient or you're treating a person, not a patient. And so you're yeah. not treating a diagnosis and you are treating a patient, um, treating that person as a real person. I keep on saying patient, treating that person as a person is, is really important. A lot of times these people have yeah. been to multiple, um, you know, specialists or multiple, multiple medical practitioners and they're given a diagnosis and, their story isn't being heard. They're being kind of dismissed. They're not being validated. Um, and so, you know, they, they come along and they just want someone to hear them and to listen to them and validate that they are in pain. And that oh, that's so important, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I listen a lot. I think that's really important. Let them tell their story and try to get more than just a diagnosis out of this person. What are the other factors that are going on and influencing their lives? And, you know, where can you help out with that? Yeah. Um, then let's see. I I think I, I talk a lot about pain and there's there's sort of this ongoing debate about, you know, they call it pain splaining and explaining pain and how much of a role that has to play. And, and I think that that's a really, really difficult thing to do is to explain pain to someone in a way that they hear that you know, their pain is real without hearing that it's just all in your head, which is oftentimes what, what they get told and what they hear is, oh, you think there's nothing wrong with me physically and so I'm, I'm making it up or my pain is not not real. It's not due to tissue trauma. Um, and I think that's, that's really, I actually find that really important to be able to explain pain in, in a way that a patient can understand how pain science sort of works and not feel that it's all in their head. Hmm. Um, but it's a really complex um, pain is actually a really complex thing. And so I spend a lot of time making sure that I try to explain it really well um, and clearly to them. And I think that's that's important. So it has complex mechanisms, mm. but you need to connect with a person and avoid, um, you know, the first thing you said was listening to somebody mm. and a great way to come up, appear that you're not listening is to talk about something that they feel is not relevant as well. Yeah. So could you explain pain to me? Um, and I, I don't have any at the moment, touch wood, but let's say it's a, some chronic lower back pain sure. and I um, met you for the first time. You perhaps, what if we go back a step, what's, um, if I had met you for the first time and I have um, persistent, we'll change. So the language is now persistent lower back pain rather than so, chronic yeah. pain. That seems to be the trend in the, yeah. in the literature now. So I've got persistent pain for more than three months, as you said, in my lower back and a variety of psychosocial yellow flags going on and and biochemical changes and potentially some psychological um, changes as well. And what, what sort of assessments would you have done on day one? Oftentimes on day one, I'll, I'll ask them what they know about their condition and what they believe and, try, and trying to find out, you know, what have they been told or what have they, you know, what do they believe and, and are those beliefs right. accurate or are they, you know, inaccurate because essentially at the end of the day pain is an assessment of threat and if you don't know a whole lot about why you're feeling what you're feeling well that makes you more threatened because you don't know much fear of the unknown makes things worse makes uh, sense yeah and so if they've got some really unrealistic beliefs so they've been told you know things that are not helpful which is probably the other thing that i would encourage people not to do is catastrophize their pain and you know tell people how bad they actually are um so this is a clinician or practitioner yeah. um, 
talking to your patient to yeah, avoid I mean, adding to that catastrophizing. Yeah. The scenario. number of times that patients mm. will come in and say, you know, I saw my, my doctor, my chiropractor, my GP or my surgeon, and they said it's the worst back they've ever seen or things like that. That's not helpful. Do people really say that stuff? They still do. Mm. And some very- Sometimes I question whether- whether these things are said or that's the interpretation. And I'm sort of always giving my colleagues the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, let's, if if that does happen, let's call that out as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you're right. Like, but it's, what did the patient hear and what did they, what did they take away from that consult? And then what did they, how did that contribute to what they believe about their condition Mm. now? Um, And so correcting that or clarifying some of those unhelpful beliefs is, is probably one of the first things that I do. Mm. Um, but you want to know what's important to them. What do they want to know? What do they need to know um, before you just go in and start telling them about this is what is actually. And that's back to your first point about listening mm. and beliefs. So listening and, and teasing out their beliefs. Uh, and then you mentioned pain as a threat and the alarm system of the body. Which yeah. is, do, you, do you still use that analogy of the the alarm being stuck on? Is that a useful analogy for some people? I think it probably is for some people. I don't, I don't use that one as much, yeah. um, but I think that I can, I can see how it's useful, but mm. probably not one that I use as much. When I explain pain to people, kind of, I guess the, the main thing that I say to people is that our body never tells our brain to make something hurt. Our body just lets the brain know the situation that it's in or the state of the tissue. It's up to the brain then to decide what to make with that information. And a lot of things go into that decision-making. So I think of pain is, is, a, is the brain's answer to a question the body asks. The body says, hey, brain, there's some chemicals in the area. What do you want to do about it? And the brain then has to answer that question. And to do so, it goes to a lot of different parts of the brain. It goes to the posterior parietal cortex, which is where your memories are kept. And it kind of looks for context there. Have you got any similar memories, been in similar situations, felt similar things, been doing similar activities? What was the outcome of that? And it adds that to the equation. It does go to the sensory cortex and says, what does it feel like? Um, but then it goes to your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is where your knowledge is kept. And it says, well, what else do you know about this? Uh, what have you been told by doctors or physios or chiros or your buddies at work? Or what have you read on Google? And that gets plugged into the equation, whether it's accurate or not, it gets plugged in. But then interestingly, it goes to your amygdala, which is where your emotions are kept. And it kind of looks at what is your emotional state like? So how stressed and depressed and anxious are you versus how protected and loved and safe and, you know, comfortable are you? And all of that stuff gets plugged in mm. and then the brain decides I'll make that hurt or it might decide I'm not going to worry about it. So that first rule of medicine of do no harm comes in there in terms of the knowledge. Yeah. And we may, everyone acts with good intentions, but you, we, we could contribute to, the condition by talking about potentially even talking about biomechanical and structural loading related things. Some people, that's what they need to hear. And I guess it goes back to listening and finding out what is important to this person that is sitting in front of you right now. What do they need to know? What is relevant to them? Some people need to know how much can I use this? How much do I need to rest it? How much do I need to move it? How much do I need to protect it? Other people, that's not really important to them. They need to know, is this going to kill me? Or is this going to, you know, make me have to get a different job? The big, big things, other people, Wrong. you know, other people are just like, I know I'm going to get over this. Tell me how to get over this. And that's where you got to listen and figure out what's important to this person to make them feel comfortable and not as threatened by their injury. 
That's a powerful message. So then uh, I'm still the patient and um, I'm still seeing you on this day one right. consult and you've been listening to me and we've been exploring previous knowledge, fears, my understanding, uh, my goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of that will be happening without you saying, I'm just going to ask you about your goals. You're going to be actually listening to the person and those things might come out spontaneously mm-hmm. or you might be questioning them, questioning me if I'm the patient or the person with back pain. Um, let's let's talk about some contributing factors then. So you mentioned um, a big one being depression, anxiety. We can screen for those. Yeah. We can refer people on mm-hmm. um, when appropriate. Um, and childhood trauma as well. Yes. Tell us about that one because because this one will come out in a minute when you talk about some of the early findings of your PhDs. It's really interesting um, and perhaps an under-recognized amongst, well, under-recognized in the public perhaps, but in the emerging area of research. So what's the connection between child, childhood trauma and persistent pain? Well, um, it is emerging. It, it's, it's not established yet, but mm. we're starting to see more and more connections between bad childhoods and and all kinds of chronic health issues, um, diabetes, obesity, depression, um, low socioeconomic status, difficulty maintaining jobs, poor social friendships, all those sort of things. And that we're starting to see association with chronic pain as well. I guess um, to to go a little bit technical, so we have um, our nerves that go from our body and then we have our nerves that go to the brain. Um, And at the spinal cord, there's a junction where the nerve coming from the the body meets the nerve that goes to the brain and it sends a chemical signal across that that synapse to the nerve that goes to the brain. Um, and most of the time what happens is that nerve or that chemical just sits on the on the surface of the nerve. It doesn't actually enter that central nerve. Um, and there is a chemical called um, GABA that prevents that from happening. And GABA is sort of like volume control on life. And I guess the analogy that I use is that if you go to a, a, a normal household where, you know, mom and dad have uh, a good relationship and they love their kids and, you know, they're doing their best to raise them and they genuinely have good intentions and, you know, I guess your normal sort of TV household or family. Um, and anyway, dad's not much of a drinker, but one night dad goes out to the pub with his friends. He has a few drinks. He comes home. He's a little bit drunk, a little bit tipsy. Um, a normal eight or nine-year-old child isn't going to notice that dad's eyes are a bit glossy or his cheeks are red, or maybe he's slurring his speech a little bit because that's GABA saying, don't worry, you're safe. GABA is sort of like the filter that Mm. says, all right, all of these things are trying to get our brain's attention and GABA has to decide what gets through. And so GABA says, no, that stuff's not important. Don't worry about it. Um, You go to a different household where dad's a drinker and when dad drinks, he gets violent. Well, it pays for that child to pick up on some of those clues that hang on. That's the look in dad's eye. That's the way that he comes in the house. That's the way that he, um, you know, throws his briefcase down when he gets in and he's had a bad day. I'm in danger here. And that's because over the years, that eight-year-old kid has reduced their levels of GABA to allow those danger signals to get through faster. Um, and they increase their cortisol levels, their fight or flight levels, their stress hormones to try and protect them from that dangerous situation. Um, and it turns out that GABA levels don't normalize just because the child's grown up or and moved out of house, or maybe because dad actually did sober up. It turns out we stay with these low levels of GABA, these heightened levels of cortisol. Um, and then the next threat that comes isn't, um, you know, a drunk dad, it's a, a bulging disc or a broken leg or something like that. GABA is not there to sort of say, let's just turn down the volume of that pain. 
And so those chemicals go to the brain much, much faster and stronger. So it can really generalize and be persistent across the lifetime in terms yeah. of that yeah. physiology. Okay. It seems to be, yeah. Yeah. So let's take let's get a take-home message for, for clinicians and students who are thinking about broadening their idea beyond biomechanics and beyond you know, pathoanatomical tissue model um, and thinking in biopsychosocial model and thinking about pain and um, how can we assess? Obviously, part of your PhD is actually directly assessing some of these neural connections. Yep. We could talk about that in a minute, which is really interesting. And it's really important to do basic science research and then connect that basic science research to, um, to clinical patterns, which mm. is what you're doing, which is really interesting. Um, that knowledge of GABA uh, being that volume control and that knowledge of that, that that can stay with someone for their lifetime, how can we apply that? How can we apply that knowledge clinically? Well, it's funny. Like I, I think first of all, you ask about it. Um, I ask all of my patients that seem to have persistent pain about their childhood and, um, not all, but I would say 60 to 70% of them, they go, Oh, where do I start? Or, so is that just an open question where you, yeah, you're just interested in how do you get along with mum and dad? Yeah. And there are questionnaires and of course there's referrals to to specialists and psychologists and people, but in a standard physio consult, an open question. Yeah. And, and I start with that. If, if, if it seems like they've got those, um, those chronic pain tendencies, then I will ask about their childhood. And it's probably not something that we as physios are, are, you know, certainly not trained as part of our regular training to deal with, but it's something that you identify and you go, okay, well, that's a factor and we mm. might need to, to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's really interesting. So the knowledge of, so this is where mechanisms can be really complex mm. and then the pushback on always thinking about mechanistically and the complexity of things, and it's particularly arguing online about mechanisms. And I spoke to Greg Lehman last week about this, mm. is that does it change what you're going to do? To me, in this case, uh, the knowledge of that physiology and the knowledge that that childhood trauma can directly impact what's going on now is a mechanism we should be aware of. That's something we should be thinking about. Yeah. Um, so it, it might... That that's maybe where it starts is with an with knowledge that this can go on and and some questioning and then what you do about it mm. can lead on from there. Yeah, and, and I think just being aware of of that as yeah. a background, it it sort of changes your expectations a little bit, um, and it might change maybe not my management, but it might help change who you bring into the team that is going to help this person. Mm. Um, sometimes it's it's not a factor, and you know there's other things, but when it's there, it's something that. I usually go into a little bit more about, you know, how have they dealt with that now as an adult and does it still bother them? And I think, you know, because I do this a lot, I'm better qualified to to help treat these patients. I think your new grads and your younger physios and even just your physios that don't generally deal with chronic pain, it might not be left to them. It might be something where you refer them on to psychology and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but it's certainly good to be aware of that as a potentially yeah. contributing factor and potentially a, a quite a significant contributing mm. factor to the condition that they're in right now. In our health system, we're primary contact practitioners. So mm. people will come in off the street and not often not knowing what's wrong with them and not knowing any of this. And so it, it's great that we have experts working like yourself that you can refer. I could refer myself or refer somebody to you today and you would write a letter back and we, you know, we could send you that, um, business I almost said, but send you that person there for, um, for help, but you still have to do something. 
as a new yeah. grad. So let's let's talk about some of the things you can do if you're you've been out for a month and you see someone with obvious complexity yeah. in their presentation and uh, you want you can always help someone. Yeah. What, what can you do? I've, absolutely, I think. Um, it's important that the new grad recognizes that the person with chronic pain, their brain perceives their body differently than before that injury or the way that, you know, I guess healthy people perceive their body, their, their homunculus, um, you new grads would probably know the, the human homunculus that changes its representation of the body. And we can assess that directly in the clinic. And so one thing that you can get them to do is, um, ask them to just close their eyes and visualize what they think that body part looks like. Um, and often if they've got, you know, if it's low back, it might be different, but if it's a, a foot or a hand, compare it to their uninjured side in their, in their mind's eye. Um, if the patient has, um, a different mental image of that, that body part, um, you can get them to actually visually correct that image. So they, they consciously change that image so that it looks more normal or more accurate representation of what it really wow. looks like. Um, that's something that most patients, it's a really good tool because they can see it in their own mind. They go, it doesn't look right. And they can kind of tell that, oh, okay, there is something that is different about the way my brain perceives my body. Um, I do a lot of tactile type stuff. So um, two point tactile acuity. Can you feel one or two points of contact? So you can get little calipers mm. um, and you can say, is there one or two? Compare that to the other side or to different body parts. Um, and it really challenges their, their brain. Um, you can do, is it sharp or is it blunt? those sort of tactile things are really good because a it's, it's, it's stimulating the body part that they've been really, really protective of, but it's, it's giving it some stimulation, some afferent um, stimulation or afferent input to the brain, but it's also making them look at that body part as more of a problem to solve rather than something to fear. So is it, is it two points of contact or one? I don't care if it hurts or not. I just want to know, is it one or two points of contact? And so they're thinking more logically about that body part. Mm. Um, I do um, pressure testing. So, you know, I've got a little um, pressure gauge device that I can push onto their um, body part. And I'll say, tell me when you get to a three out of a 10 and I'll push it down. Oftentimes the, the patient with chronic pain they'll or persistent pain, they'll have a, a, a pain threshold of like, you know, a kilo of force and that's it. You go to a different body part, tell me when you get to a three out of a 10 and it'll be up to like 10, 15 kilos of force. And then Wow. So in the clinic, you really see a huge difference yeah, between the skin yeah. over the affected or near the affected area and an unrelated area yeah. in that pressure pain threshold. Wow. Yeah. And, and I find that then I'll go and, okay, I'm going to show you what you got in your, you know, your pain area. I'll show you, they had a, let's say they had a one kilo of force over their low back, which is where their pain is. Then I'll go to their hand where they don't have persistent pain. And I'm going to show you what you felt in your back and when it became painful and you do that one kilo and they go, no, you're kidding. And again, it just, it helps them to realize that the way that they're perceiving their body maybe isn't as accurate as it. As so you're working with them, you're understanding them, you're listening to them, you're still ticking those important parts off, but this is assessment and management as well. Yeah. yeah. What other management do you use? I'm thinking exercise. Yeah. In a way, this is all in the education sure. sphere, isn't it? Well, one of the things that um, patients with persistent pain have is we see big changes in the way that their muscles contract, their motor units. Um, and so you, you kind of think about your um, your muscles like hands that pull on a rope. You've got, let's say, in your, in your grip, if you want to squeeze your fist, you might have 20,000 hands that can pull on 20,000 ropes to, to squeeze your fist. If I got to lift up my coffee cup here, my brain knows that that's a very light object. I don't need all 20,000 hands to pull on that 
to, to engage because that coffee cup's fairly light. People with persistent pain, they work a lot harder just using their muscles. And so they will use, you know, instead of maybe 3000 hands or motor units to lift up the coffee cup, they'll use 80% of their motor units. They'll use 8,000 to try and lift up that coffee cup. So they're exerting a lot of energy um, to do that. So um, we use just some things like um, biofeedback devices and, and teach them to learn to modulate um, how much they, they contract their muscles. Um, Interesting. And that can, that can be quite helpful because they learn to, to sometimes it's not about being stronger. It's actually about using less motor units for your lighter tasks. So that you've got more reserve. You don't fatigue as easily. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that people with chronic pain have, they go, I can't do anything for too long. And part of the reason for that is because they're doing everything they do. They're doing it, you know, near max capacity. You're going to burn through their energy supplies early, like right. much faster. They need to go home and rest. Um, teaching them to modulate their muscles is, is important. It's just as important as, as increasing their strength which they're also usually quite weak. Mm. So exercises in many ways can be quite simple. Yes. But the, the thinking and clinical reasoning and the science behind them can be really complicated as well. Yeah. Now, obviously here we're trying to keep things simple, digestible, foundational, and um, someone, you know, you're not going to take out the FNIRS or the TMS machine, which is something that you do in your your PhD, and measure directly measure the the function of the brain, right? But knowing that that knowledge isn't superfluous just because you can't measure it in the clinic, right? Yeah. Understanding these mechanisms, that there are some simple assessments, and 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 also it was interesting how you use those as teaching tools. Mm. For example, the pressure or the biofeedback on those overactive muscles. What's the role of general exercise for for pain? This is contra- a potentially controversial topic. Is it specific exercises or getting people generally active? Generally, the training. Both? Well, the evidence seems to be that just exercising is is what we should be doing. The these ideas so going for a walk, going for a run, doing something that's yeah. pushing you. Yeah. Um, what we want, what we really want to do is these most of these patients they have withdrawn so much from their their lives in trying to avoid pain. That becomes their, their main goal is to try not to do things that make things hurt. So they don't do things trying to get patients to feel safe enough to actually just move and try to lift things up. Um, that's kind of the main goal. And so finding something that they feel it it needs to be something that is uncomfortable for them. It's gotta be a challenge but a challenge that they can do. We want them to have success. Yeah. Um, I generally, I suppose I have a, a bit of a rule. I, if I have a patient that has, you know, persistent pain, they're always in some degree of pain. Hopefully, you know, we can get them so that they're around a three or four out of a 10, you know, at their, at their, you know, general comfort levels that, you know, people, people often have, um, we use this, you know, this scale of zero is no pain, 10 is the worst pain ever. And where are you on that scale? People with persistent pain almost always are up the high ends of that scale. They'll be at seven, eight, nine, just sitting there in the chair talking to you. Um, and that's probably not because they're actually in like an eight or a nine out of a 10. It's because they're, they no longer have a scale. They have a dichotomy. They have, I have zero pain, which is what I want, or I have some pain, which is what I don't want. And so that pain is going to be very intense. Hmm. Um, and they, they, they don't know what zero out of 10 or like a three out of a 10 is anymore. Right. So we need to reset that. Um, once you sort of reset that, we get them to a baseline and we say, okay, you're at a three out of a 10. We're going to do an activity until you go up to a five out of a 10. And then we're going to stop that activity. Now that might be a 10 minute sort of workout. It might be a 45 second 
exercise or something like that. And then we will stop that activity until they've returned to their baseline. And those sort of general guidelines can be good for both the clinician and the person, the patient to, to sort of abide by because it gives them a bit of structure um, and things to work towards. Have those same general guidelines with other conditions as mm. well. Like Greg was talking about last week, when you zoom out and take a wider view of the principles that we work with in, in rehab, often you see similarities across different conditions and you think, hang on, this is similar stuff. I was yeah. thinking of tendinopathy there with immediate and 24-hour responses, but yeah. the importance of the person being aware of that and not just you instructing them, but I'm going to go away for a week now and do exercise and I've got a plan. I've got a bit of a roadmap for what do I do Yeah. Um, when it when it gets worse and, and, and thinking about the, the response, the latent response. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But if, if the patient, you know, goes and they do an exercise and they get a little bit of increase in pain. They're always in pain anyway. So they get a little bit of an increase in pain, but then that pain kind of goes back to what it was before they did the exercise. Hopefully they can kind of see, hang on, I had some success with whatever it is that I just did and my body's not worse from it. Maybe I can do that again. And, you know, that expands their, their envelope of function a little bit that gives them a little bit more functional capacity, a little bit more that they can do. Yeah. Great. So, PhD, how's it going? <laughs> um, I know you very well, and I'm working with you on your PhD. Tell everyone about your PhD and what are you trying to measure and do and what's it all about? Sure. So um, PhD is about uh, people with chronic low back pain and trying to understand a little bit about why do what is different between their, their brains um, and their, their neurochemistry and their brain activity compared to people who don't have persistent pain. Um Started out just looking at um, neurochemistry using TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which gives us a, an indirect idea about um, a few neuro, neurotransmitters, in particular GABA, which is again like an inhibitory, calm, calm shit down um, neurotransmitter, and mm. their glutamate, which is a kind of fight or flight. Another Greg Lehman reference there. Yes. From last week. Yep. yep. Calm shit down, build shit up. Um, so it's a, it, it looks at the neurochemistry and um, if they have you know, reduce levels of GABA or reduce levels of glutamate. We mm. can kind of get a pretty good um, indication of that. Um, we just finished that, that big study. Um, it took about two and a half years because we were locked out for about two of them with COVID. Um, so it's a bit frustrating um, and found really cool results. So we found that um, we looked at actually not looking at the low back, the, the, the way TMS works is you put some electrodes over a muscle and then you put a magnet over the brain and that magnet tells the brain to tell that muscle to contract and then based on the size of those contractions we can get an idea about their neurochemistry um we actually didn't use the low back mostly because it's really painful to to do tms on the low back um and so we thought well we're probably not going to get enough subjects that'll undergo a painful so just just to update the listeners, I've, I've been a control subject in your study. And so you sit in this chair and you have a, a coil that's placed over your skull. The magnetic stimulation goes through the skull and it's painless. It just feels like someone's tapping on you, mm. top of your head with their, like they're playing the piano on your head. Um, and repeat that many, many times and you get lots of different data points from the person. And then you're measuring the contraction of the associated muscles, so stimulating the motor cortex and across most of that, crosses over mm-hmm. the pyramids of the medulla doesn't it? it goes down the other side and stimulates say the quadriceps on the on the other side yeah and sometimes you you get a, a spot that 
does nothing. And other times you'll stimulate a little spot on the cortex where your leg goes doing and you get a involuntary contraction and that feels weird. Yeah. But it was, it was pain-free. And, but it, what you're saying is if you did that over the part of the homunculus on the cortex associated with the lower back mm. and then put the electrodes over the lower back, that would be really uncomfortable. It feels like a spasm in your lower back. Yeah. There's can, a I avo- can I avoid that when you do that? I'll, I'll be sick that day. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the part of the homunculus that controls the back is kind of buried deep in the brain. So you got to okay. use a, a big magnet, a big coil, right. um, and you got to put it on a fairly high intensity. Um, and so there have been studies that have done it in the past. And one of the things is there was a high dropout rate because patients just, or the people, the subjects didn't like it. Um, so typically most TMS is done over the thumb. Um, so the thumb, our, our brain devotes tons of brain space to our thumb because it's what makes us human. Um, and so it's very easy to get a, a contraction a stimulus over the the thumb, but the thumb in the brain is actually really close to the face. And we found um, a few of the patients with pain didn't like the the face twitch that came with it, okay. um, myself included. I really hate it when I do TMS on the thumb um, on myself because it just is uncomfortable. And so we thought, well, well let, let's go down to the tibialis anterior, down to the shin. Um, and A, it's a lot more comfortable. Um, you can still get um, a twitch out of it. Um, and the thing that I like is most of the, the kind of the pain science theory has always focused on with the TMS and the neurochemistry studies, it's focused on the, the part of the body that is in pain. So if we're looking at low back, it'd be muscles around the low back. If we're looking at, um, you know, the foot, we'd look at muscles around the foot. Um, but to me, it seems kind of unrealistic to think that the changes that happen in the brain and the neurochemistry of the brain are somehow only isolated to just the body part that's in pain. I think that if we kind of consider that this person has high stress and high anxiety or depression or childhood trauma or, you know, whatever it might be, that's probably not just going to be happening. Those neurochemical changes are not just going to be happening in the homunculus area that has their back. It's probably going to be throughout the whole brain. Um, and that's what we found. We did find that um, patients with, or, sorry, people with chronic low back pain um, had lower levels of GABA or or um, lower levels of, of inhibition. They were more facilitated than healthy controls um, in the area of their body part that is not in pain. So we didn't have anyone that had sciatica. We didn't have anyone that had leg pain or or paresthesia or anything. They just had low back pain, non-radicular. Um so they had altered neurochemistry. So that was really cool. And then we also were able to link that to childhood trauma. So there's a, a test called the Adverse Childhood Event Score. And it's a, a series of 12 questions that asks if they had um, physical, sexual, mental abuse, neglect, drug and alcohol use, someone in jail, mental health issues, suicide, violence in the family, those sort of things. And what we found is um, none of our controls. So we had what do we have 25, 26 controls? None of them had high levels of trauma. Most of them, if they had any, they had divorce. Um, and that was it. Um, none of our um, controls had high levels of childhood trauma. And uh, not all of our chronic pain patients have childhood trauma, but a vast majority of them did somewhere around 75, 80% had high levels of childhood trauma. And there was a direct correlation between the more yeses that they had on that scale, the more different their neurochemistry was. So it does seem like childhood trauma might be um, causative of changes in neurochemistry, which might then be associated with chronic pain. So I think it's a very cool study. Mm. Novel and really important. And of course, then it takes, the next step is then to explore 
prospectively, yeah. so across time, and then yeah. develop interventions and different um, approaches for people in the clinic. But I guess if I'm a clinician listening to this and I hadn't considered the real impact or hadn't maybe wasn't quite sure whether it was real or not. So you've got some evidence here that there's potentially a causal link. Yeah, and, and fairly fairly strong. Mm. Um, pretty good evidence. The numbers are good. So I mean, we, this is so much you can go into on any topic. Right? Yeah. We could record 10 podcast episodes right now on this topic. They always say it's um, a danger to give any PhD student a, a platform to talk about that's their right. PhD. Never ask a PhD student about their PhD. <laughs> well, we should, though. It's good because that's what you should be doing. You should be talking about it and publishing your research and everything, but often they're behind a paywall. Mm. Um, they're presented at conferences. Not everyone can go. Mm. That's important, the traditional academic model, but podcasts, the whole point is to talk in a free, natural, unedited way and, and make real connections. And, you you know, you started this conversation with some vulnerabilities and, and admitting, you know, you were frustrated by trying to help people. And still, we still am sometimes. They're still See, difficult. You know, they're the most difficult people to treat, I think, are the yeah. ones with chronic pain and complex lives. Mm. And there'll be listeners out here who are, aren't at your high-level experience who feel the same way. Mm. And you don't get that from reading Max's article that's published in the journal. That's, that's important as well, but talking about this stuff really matters. Mm. And in a, um, I call it a fireside conversation, sort of a... A relaxed way, really exploring it together. So, uh, any final thoughts that you want to share with our audience on managing pain in the clinic? Um, I think there's a few things. One, I th- it's really important that you develop a good rapport with your patient or with your, the the person that you're treating because they need to trust you. That most of the time, these people have been let down by both the medical system and just people in their lives. They have. Um, it's very rare that I get someone with persistent pain that has everything else going for them in their life. They got good jobs and they're happy and their marriages are great and they've got good kids and they're financially well off and they're just happy people and they have chronic pain. I just don't get that patient very often. So you you are dealing with people that have been let down. They're the vulnerable people in our society. Um, Potentially trust issues, resentment. um, So they need to trust you. mm. Um, and so listening to them is really important and validating what they're feeling and what they're experiencing is, is really important. Um, and then there is no recipe. There is no, here's how we treat this and here's how we do this. It's a lot of trial and error. And you know what we kind of do with pain patients is we take everything we know about pain science and we throw it at the patient and see what sticks. Um, and it's frustrating, but sometimes I do like the, the graded motor imagery where they imagine their, their body limb and it looks pretty much like it should in them. Oh, that's not what I expected. Mm. Um, you do, you know, strength stuff and they're really, really strong. That's not what you expect. Sometimes, you know, you just don't get what you expect. And so you've got to, you go with what works for the patient. So I see the problem with my earlier question, which was me being a, uh, a, a patient with lower back pain, chronic lower back pain, persistent lower back pain. So you really, there, there's no one, approach that fits everyone, which wouldn't surprise anyone listening to this, but especially with people with persistent pain. Mm. It's just, it it is trying to find what works for the patient or for the person that's, that's in front of you. Some people, it is a lot of tactile acuity stuff and getting that afferent stimulation. Some people it's more exercise based. Some people it is more mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, I use a lot of imagery or even like aromatherapy and that sort of stuff and trying to divert their brain from dwelling in that pain. 
Right. I think probably my my favorite analogy is is, and I, I, it's a visual image. So I'll want to edit it out. You can, but um, I, I think of if you kind of think of pain as say you draw a circle the size of a golf ball. Right. Right. And you say that's pain, and then you draw a slightly larger circle around that golf ball, and that's that person's life. Right. Pain is a large part of their life. Mm. The goal for most people when they think about it is they go, let's make that golf ball smaller. Let's make the pain smaller. But a lot of times that doesn't work. Either it's not possible or it just doesn't work. So if you draw that second golf ball, you draw another circle, same size as that golf ball, call it pain, but draw something that's much, much bigger, like a basketball around that mm. and make that their life. That seems to be a better approach in my my experience, make life bigger rather than make pain smaller. Wow. That's a really nice way to look at it. So can't claim that as mine. I can't remember where I've seen it, but it's not my own analogy. Someone else much smarter than me came up with that. I just like it. No, that's, that's really good. So I think we, we, we've, we've really just touched the surface there on a number of important components, but sure. we've been able to delve into a bit of your thinking as someone who's an expert in this area. So really grateful for your time, Mac. Thanks for coming on for the the first in-person Physio Foundations interview. Uh-huh. Susanna and I have sat there with these mics talking to someone on Zoom, but it's good to do it face-to-face yeah. and enjoy coffee. So really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you having me. It was really, really fun. We'll have to do it again. There's so much more we can dive into, but we'll leave Anytime. it there for now. So thanks everyone for joining us, making it this far into the conversation. So don't forget to share the episode. You can connect with us on social media at Periton Physio. That's Susanna and I, or me at Luke Periton. Uh, Mac, you're on Twitter. Yes. What's yours? What's your handle? I actually don't know. I'll, I'll put it in the show no notes. <laughs> it's, he's got. He's on Twitter. I'll put it in the show notes so you can look him up there, and um, you can follow Mac's work um, in journals. But you, your, your research profile as well. I'll put that in the show notes as well. All right. So you can look up Mac and find out more about him and his work. Uh, but for now, thanks very much, Mac. Thank you. That's great. So until next time, this is Mac and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 